Well, welcome to Apologetics. A couple of announcements before we start. One is, I guess the big announcement is that um, Sunday night service is tonight. So we start at 5.30. So we'll have time for, here's some ministry updates, some prayer requests uh, from that, and then a short devotion. So I really encourage, if you haven't come to the Sunday night or Sunday evening service, then I really would encourage you to come, come be a part of that. Well, we are slowly kind of wrapping up the seminar. I hope that you've enjoyed this class as much as Scott and I have enjoyed teaching this class. It's been, it's been uh, enjoyable to, to prep for this and to kind of anticipate maybe some questions that you might have too. Once again, I want to remind you a couple of things before we do the handouts and, or the giveaways. Because um, I've had this question asked a lot. Well, what, you haven't talked about this or what about this? And those are great questions. Um, I'm, I'm super impressed with the amount of kind of background knowledge a lot of you have, and you're um, not just desire to want to, to do apologetics, but actually you're reading. So a lot of you've done a lot of reading. It's super impressive. But as you well know, and if, you, if you've studied apologetics or you haven't, this is a massive overview. Okay, There's no way in the world to get all this in in six weeks. There's just no way. Um, I teach a semblance of this course um, at the place where I work, and we spend a whole semester uh, on this, on what would be condensed in these six weeks. We spread that out over uh, a whole semester. So even in that, that's cutting it, that's cutting it a bit close um, as well. So just, just to give you, to reassure you that we want to encourage you to read. So that's why Scott and I... Um, present you some readings, some of them more technical than others. And if you notice this week, and I, I borrowed this from Scott. Got Scott, I think, picked this up from Trey, too. Um, on the back of your handout is a list, further list, of resources. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's a good place to start. So you'll see um, some, some text, and I've given you just a sampling of, of uh, some of them, the reliability of the author's the resurrection of Jesus, the inspiration and errancy. The reason I gave you those three is that today you can't talk about the resurrection without incorporating the scriptures. And I know, yeah, that's where we read it from. But these two things are intimately linked together. The reliability, the trustworthiness of the scriptures and the resurrection. It's an all or nothing argument. And I didn't make it an all or nothing argument, although I fully believe that it is. Um, Paul, the apostles, make it an all-or-nothing argument, okay? So it, it, either, it either goes with it or it doesn't, and Paul's very much onto this. So we'll spend a good bit of time today in the introduction looking at some things. So I've got a bit of a setup to do today before we get to some parts of this as well. Um, the other part for the giveaway is just a, just a couple of reminders. I've kind of tried to hit this as... As we've gone on, Scott's done this as well. Apologetics, we're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to give a reason, and hopefully a rational reason, for why you believe what you say that you actually do believe. I mentioned to you, this is much for your kids. The, the, we live in a culture today that's after their minds and is equally after their hearts. And sometimes you go and you're raised in a Christian home, you raise your kids, and they go to a university. I did the same thing. And you get to a classroom, and all of a sudden you have a really smart guy in front of the class who's got a couple of PhDs. And in about five minutes, this happens in every kind of scenario, in about five minutes you can have the world pulled out from underneath you. And a student will come out of that classroom and think, you know, I wasn't given the memo on this. What happened? <laughs> now I'm starting to be challenged on some things that I haven't really thought about before. So as much for anything at all, um, is for you to start thinking about these things um, with your kids. So it's not to win an argument. It's actually to win a heart. We've talked about that the first week. And then the other part, too, is apologetics. And I've made this argument because, once again, I'm leaning on Paul because he makes this argument. So I have no authority. Paul has the authority because of the inspired word. Paul makes the argument, too, that ultimately... Apologetics, and he is the par excellence of apologetics, the apologist, right? Paul is. He is uh, making the claim and the argument that apologetics ultimately is not about a philosophical concept. It's actually about a person. 
And it's grounded in that. It's grounded in something that we can know. And not just something, but actually someone. And it's the resurrected Christ. We're, we're taking this whole thing on the authority of the resurrected Jesus. And there's the argument. And there's where we're going to go today. Okay, so that's a big. That's going to be a big, a big claim of this. Okay, a couple of uh, few giveaways here today. I've been pushing a couple of these books as well. I've given away several of these in class. I'm talking with a stu- former student right now, who grew up in Christianity, um, is struggling. Um, never thought he was a Christian. Not sure. Liked the idea of being sort of Christian, but comes to the realization has a recently. Um, he's probably not a Christian. Um, and he's, you know, asked things like, well, can I believe, can I, you know, can I doubt the resurrection and be a Christian? Is that possible? And Paul answers that question, isn't he? It's not possible. Right? So one of the books I put him to really quickly is, well, actually, who is Jesus? Okay. So this is a very good book to getting into the argument. It's not overly complicated. Okay. So I know we've given away this book several times over the several weeks. We're pushing this book for a reason. It's a very good book. Okay. So if nothing else, if you could pick this book and get it, I've got a hand up to, to share with and go with with a friend of yours. Once you pass it down, that would be great. The other book is uh, by R.C. Sproul, A Reason to Believe. So he takes in really condensed form a lot of these questions that will be either we've looked at, we've kind of skirted on, or we just don't have time to get to. Okay? So maybe you had questions, um, a little bit more information, a little bit further questions about the existence of God, or what about the poor innocent native in somewhere who's never heard the gospel? What happens? That's a really big question. I get that question a lot. Well, he does a really good job of answering that question in this book. Anybody? Yes. All right. And then really quickly, I asked permission to do this. So I've gotten to, one of the great things about teaching this class is I've gotten to know a lot of you that I would not have gotten to know. So I've gotten to know a little bit uh, Dr. Summers, and he put, has put together with the group that he works with, a, um, it's a chronological synthesis of the Gospels concerning the resurrection. This is one of the better handouts I've looked at where it takes all the Gospels and it will synthesize, it will, it will merge them together, it will blend them together like the puzzle piece that it is. Um, and it goes through the opening scene of the garden, uh, guarding the tomb, and it'll, go, it'll give a timeline. I told him this morning I was interested in seeing how they work through the timeline which always brings up some, or not always, it brings up some questions sometimes. Um, so if you'd like a copy, I have two of these. I've asked permission. He said yes. So this would be a very worthwhile thing to kind of work through. All right. Well, I think that's it. Let's get started. Let's get started. We've got a lot of, got a lot of stuff, short time. Let's get going. So uh, overview for a second. So we've looked at some things up to this point in this apologetics class. Um, some things that we've looked at is uh, the existence of God. And that was one of the larger arguments. As a matter of fact, if I could get you to write this down in your notes, I would suggest you write this down and think about this, that apologetics really um, is, if you get these two things down, if you, can, if you can look at them, you can think through them, you will be a very good apologist. Okay, So here are the two things. One is the argument for the existence of God. So I spent uh, a couple of weeks ago, or actually three weeks, two weeks ago, on that argument. And I gave you several ways to look at that. Um, One in particular is what's called the cosmological argument. It's a big word. First cause argument. That's really an ontological argument, too. There's the big word again. It's a being argument. And I made the argument this way. There's only four possibilities to explain all of reality. That's it. Everything else is subsumed underneath these four possibilities. Either the universe created itself, which is a, an absurdity, but that's the lo- that is the, the argument today. It's self-created. It's all an illusion, which we talked, that, that can't be. You're here. If you're not sure if you're here, then see me after class. Once again, we'll work on that one. Um, the universe is eternal, and I told you that even science itself has doesn't believe that to be the case. We have the leading... Um, minds of the 20th century who know that's not the case. It's not eternal. So we're really left with one, one other possibility, that there is a self-existent eternal being. 
That being has the power of being within himself. This is God. And a great question was brought up when I, when I ended that argument is, well, okay, you've proven a deistic form. You've proved a being. You've proved a God. But what about the God? How does that work with the God of the Scriptures? And so I borrowed, I stole from Paul in this argument. Paul in Acts 17 begins with the idea of God as creator. If God is nothing else, he is creator. And we know he's more than that. But brothers and sisters, he's not less than that. Okay? And Paul picks up from that and he works that. We don't have time to read that today. You'd want to read that. He works from that argument that in, in this God, we live, move, and have our being. He draws upon this ancient Greek philosopher, poet, Epimenides. And in God, we live, move, and have our being. We could not live, move, or be without something that has always been, that's eternal. But Paul doesn't stop there. He moves to the resurrected Jesus, and this is where he loses people because they think he's crazy. Okay? So the existence of God is the primary thing. Number two, so I'm having you write these down, right? The apologetics, the two big things, the existence of God, and then the other one is the trustworthiness of the Scriptures. Okay? And this is where Scott's very helpful, what he did last week. So Scott came, and I really didn't know what, how he was going to approach this. We've talked a little bit, so I was curious to see myself. That's why I sit on the front row. Um, so Scott took this, this approach, and he said, well, well the, we can trust the translations. We have a lot of different translations, and the reason is, is that there are ways, different ways to, to word the original Greek. But we know, we're very sure what the Greek says. So there's the translation. Uh, he talked about the transmission. How do we, we don't have the original documents. Can we be really sure of that? If we don't have the originals, this is, this is a hang-up for students sometimes. You're telling me you don't have the originals? Probably not. Maybe. But maybe not. Well, then how in the world can we know? And then Scott goes through, kind of in condensed form, well, we know because we've got a lot of copies of this, meticulous copies of this. We have more copies of the New Testament. We have more surety that there was a person historically named Jesus than we do of Plato and his writings, of Homer. I teach Homer. We assume Although, yes, there's some doubts of whether he would really wrote these things or not. But we, nonetheless, there was a, at least someone who subsumed the idea or assumed the, the, the idea that historically there was a poet who wrote these. They had to be because we have them. Okay? So Scott helped us kind of through that as well. He talked about how we got these documents. Why these 66 books? And in particular, the New Testament, why these, why these books? How did we get them? And there is a particular verb that we'd want to consider when we talk about this. Because sometimes in church, uh, when we talk about these things, and church history gets pulled into this, sometimes the argument is that a, a bunch of guys sat around a room, um, 5th century, spread the books out, and then they just kind of willy-nilly picked the books. They chose the books that they wanted to, to include in the canon. And ladies and gentlemen, historically, um, that is not true. We know that. How do we know that? Well, we know the fact that weren't, they weren't chosen, they were recognized. So what's the difference? Well, the fact that early on in the church, we see them already recognizing the difference between Scripture and something that would fall outside the bounds of that. And that's why in archaeology, this finding that Scott mentioned last time is so important. It's called the Muratorium Fragment. And it lists most, not all, but most of the books of the New Testament that were being recognized. Now, why is it called Miratorium? It's because of the archaeologists who found it. Okay? It was a tremendous find. And if you ever want to kind of see this further, go online, Google this, and you can actually see pictures of the, of the document itself. So the introduction. That's the setup to get to this. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this introduction, I've got to tell you. So it's one thing to say this. It's one thing to say, okay, we've got documents. We can translate them. We, can tra we know the transmission. We know that the apostles are the ones that either wrote the books or, in, in, or recognized those books that were considered in this. But here comes a question. And I get this question a lot from students. So maybe you've thought about this question too. 
Well, okay, the, the Bible claims to be the Word of God, doesn't it? This is the student, Susan asked me this question. I said, yes, it does. So we go through that process. It's one thing if the Bible doesn't claim to be the Word of God, but it does. And that elevates the argument. But what about other books? What about the book of Quran, the, the Quran? Does it claim to be the Word of God? Yes, it does. Well, what about the Book of Mormon? Maybe more contemporary view of that. Well, doesn't it claim to be the Word of God? And ladies and gentlemen, the answer to that is yes, it does. So, question, how do you handle something like that? So I've heard different people make different arguments to this. Christian People who are believers in the Scriptures, and they'll say, well, I believe the Bible is the Word of God because it says it is. And I'll say, okay, I'm with, I believe that too. But if my only basis for that is because it says that, then does that not mean that I have to accept other books who make that same claim? What we're after here is more than it just it says it. Do I believe it? Yes, absolutely I do. Is it inspired? Yes. The question comes is, how do we, as making an apology, an apologetic, make that claim? Now, I know that some, some of you subscribe to presuppositionalism, okay? Um, and I know you have a particular way that you would argue this, this particular point. It may differ the way I'm going to present it today. I get that. I totally do. And there are different ways to, to make this argument. So I just want to set you at ease with that, too. I understand that. I totally get that. But a good place to start in this argument is this. I'll, let you, I'll direct you to the handout. This is an introduction. So what about these other books? How can we move this argument that we're not stuck in some kind of vicious circle? So the Bible's the Word of God. The Bible's the Word of God because it says it's the Word of God. Therefore, the Bible's the Word of God. And while we in this room believe that to be absolutely to the case and true and defend that, someone who is not a believer is perhaps going to be a bit skeptical with that circular argument. What we want to try to do, once again, not trying to win an argument, but to go back to what Peter says is to give a reason. And one of the best places, I think, to start to that is, if you look at this handout, is to make the assertion that the Bible, number one in this handout, is historically reliable. That these documents, and Scott's done, started this process already, that these, at least if nothing else, they are historically reliable reliable documents. They're talking about things and people who existed in time and space that we can trust the scriptures at least from that, if nothing else, if you're talking to someone, from that basis. There is a famous archaeologist named William Foxwell Albright. And Albright, by the way, just to set a context of who he is, Albright was to archaeology what Einstein was to physics. That's how important he was in this field of the science of archaeology. Einstein, uh, Albright makes the argument that this person in ancient history is actually the best ancient historian that he's ever run across. Any guesses who that might be? Say it again. Josephus? Anybody else? Yes, it's Luke. Just from, a, just from a historical perspective, there are people who are not believers in any sense of the imagination who would affirm that Luke is a prime example of an um, accurate and effective um, ancient historian that wrote and told about certain events that took place. Now, I'm, I'm, for just the sake of this argument, a little bit today, really quickly, just looking at the New Testament documents, okay? So we have a, we have a historically reliable documents that talk about a person named Jesus. I realize that people that are around today that believe that there was no person named Jesus. Well, that was, that was an argument that was made at the end of the 19th century, mostly by some Dutch scholars. But today, part and parcel, most people today... Secular scholars, secular historians believe there really was a person named Jesus in history. So there's our start point. So we can't stay there, though. So people are like, okay, there's a, there's a real book. There's told about a real person. 
But how do you get to the fact, why this book? Number two, this book tells about a person named Jesus. Matter of fact, it's an authoritative Jesus who teaches. And he's not just teaching about anything. He's teaching that he is a messenger, a unique messenger sent from God. As a matter of fact, he moves beyond that. He says that he is God himself. He is God. This is really interesting, this argument, in light of the fact of what we're going through right now. Brad's preaching through this um, in Mark, because this is the argument. Matter of fact, this sermon today, pay really close attention to what, what Brad preaches through in this sermon today about how the Pharisees will accuse Jesus of being of the devil because of the stuff that he's done. And Jesus gives them a really quick parable about that. If you've read that passage, you know where that's headed, right? This is an authoritative Jesus. But hasn't there other been people who have been authoritative that claim to be God? Well, of course they have. But what's unique about this, this authoritative Jesus is this, that he's a miracle worker. Now, you're, you stop here and say, oh, okay. Now, hang on. I'm a person of the mind, right? Um, we know in 20th, 21st century world science, miracles don't happen. And my pushback to that is, well, how do you know that's the case? The burden of proof is now back on to you. How do you know that miracles don't happen? Have you, is it because you haven't seen a miracle? Well, I have not seen a miracle. Does that prove that a miracle doesn't take place? Well, of course not. Some of you in this room who know who David Hume is. Some of you may not. This was his big argument against the issue of miracles. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, we start with the existence of God. We don't start with the scriptures first, and this the way we've been doing it. You can. We started with the existence of God. And we have shown, hopefully to your satisfaction, that they're not just, maybe is a God. No, there, there is absolutely, it's necessary. It's not only logically necessary, it's ontologically necessary. There has to be something that has always been. This is where Paul starts. This is the creator. And if there is a God, since there is a God, would it not be possible that this God could do miracles? Not just probable, but possible. And the, the push in that argument is, it, yes, it could be. So we could spend a lot of time, we don't have the time, we could spend a lot of time looking at individual miracles in the New Testament. I want to go to the miracle of all miracles, because Paul goes there. Which is what? The resurrection. So you write that in your notes. We, Jesus is a miracle worker. He claims to be God. He's an authoritative messenger. And he's built that on the fact of who he says he is. This is so great to read the Gospels, to see him, people dealing with that. Jesus claims to be God. And only God can do these things. We, not, we, not the fact we rest our whole case on this, but take a look at Nicodemus in John 3. Nicodemus makes a very lucid, logical assertion. And he says about Jesus to Jesus. We know what? What does Nicodemus say to Jesus? We know that you're a messenger sent from God because, he gives a reason, because you couldn't do these things otherwise. And the epicenter of all that, this is the question of Christianity, is the resurrection. So number three, we have an authoritative Jesus. By the way, he's not just a miracle worker. He says that the scriptures themselves are from God. He's the authorized messenger. God is claiming that these, mess, these books are from him. These are the words of God. He's endorsing the Old Testament, the graphe, the writings. And he's saying that the Old Testament is from God. Well, we don't have the New Testament yet. No, we don't. But he's authorizing that New Testament. And this is why Scott's point to that last week is so important, that Jesus gives the authorization to the apostles, the people who are with him, who see him. So the third point, I'm rushing through this, I know, that this Bible we have that's inspired, by the way, inspiration is tied to this argument as well, that this Bible that we have that's inspired, that's infallible, that's all these things. And why is it infallible? Because it's from God. And it can't be, it can't have mistakes and be fallible if it's something that's from God. It's an all or, or nothing argument in that sense. So this whole Bible, this word of God, rests upon the authority of the resurrected Jesus. 
That's how these things are linked together in this way. So just for a second, by the way, the apologist uh, Norman Geisler puts it this way. This is an all or nothing argument in the sense. So I gave you the quote, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he's a false prophet. We can't trust him. For he predicted his own resurrection. The New Testament writers claim they saw him. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we can't trust the New Testament writers either. And this whole thing's a house of cards, and it falls in that way. So this is where I begin my argument. The other place is this. So if you have a Bible, let's take a look at this for a second. And to be really honest with you, I'm not that concerned if I get to my points. My points don't matter compared to Paul's point because he's writing the inspired scriptures. And Paul's a better apologist than I am. And this is him at his best making an apologetic. So this is, let's look at this. In scripture. This is 1 Corinthians 15. I know a lot of you know this passage well. 1 Corinthians 15. Let you find that for a second. This is the epicenter of teaching uh, about the resurrection. This is Paul at maybe his best in his argument. This is definitely his most condensed argument that he has, um, making the claim of the resurrection. So I'm going to pick up in verse 12. I'll stop here for a second. I know I ran through that. We're running. This is always a condensed time. Any questions that you have that I threw at you on making the claim of why we're holding to the Scriptures to be the Word of God? Does that argument make sense? I know it's going to bring up a lot of other questions. Please email me these, okay? By the way, my name's not Christ. I don't know if you saw the back. I didn't do that. So it's Chris. Right. But please email me if you have some questions on that. It does? Okay, good. Because some of them said Christ, and that was a little... <laughs> that was a bit heretical and, dis- and disconcerting. This is 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to slow down here on this. Once again, I don't care about my points. Paul makes this point really well. Okay? And particularly how he argues this point. Okay. So once again, I know you have people in your life who are not believers and say, okay, you're trying to prove to me something that's in the Scriptures. Yeah, I, we get that, right? But we've already reverted back to argument in the first section of this, right? Have them say, okay, just as a historical document, writing in history and time, he's writing about a person. Paul says this, verse 12, just to set this up, the Corinthians are not doubting that Jesus rose from the dead. They're doubting that the resurrection would ever happen for them. Paul, this is so good. Paul takes up their argument. And in verse 12, he says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, well, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? Verse 13, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul is using an argument that he is very well trained in. This is a classic Greek argument. Paul was very well educated. And Paul's using what's called an ad hominem argument. Now, there's two varieties of this. An ad hominem argument can be what's called a fallacy, where you can attack somebody. Like If you're, we're arguing about something, and I'm not sure that I can hold my argument, I might call... If Matt and I were arguing, I might say, well, Matt, you're ugly, so I don't believe you. (laughs) Well, Matt's not ugly. But that would be a fallacious form. That's a fallacy, right? How he looks has nothing to do with his argument. Okay, So that's one style. Paul's not using that style because there's another half of this, which is called reducing an argument to an absurdity. So if Matt and I were debating and Matt said, okay, Chris, I'll take on you. I'll believe your argument. And then Matt takes my argument and he runs it all the way to the very end and shows you how crazy my argument is. That's what Paul's doing here. It's called, notice what he'll do here. It's called an if-then argument. If this, then this. If this, then this. So his premise is that no one has been resurrected. No one is raised. Now, Paul doesn't believe that. 
But he's saying, okay, I'm going to take your argument. No one's raised. No one. That's a universal negative. That's encompassing everybody. All. And if it encompasses all, guess what? Jesus fits into that. So this is what Paul does. Verse 13. Now, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Now we're getting into the implications. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul will not let us go, let go of this. What you believe is worthless. If there is no resurrection, that's it. He keeps going with this. Verse 15. We are found to be misrepresenting God. There's another implication. Now that you've been preaching about Jesus, um, if there's no resurrection, he hasn't risen from the dead. You're misrepresenting God. Because we've testified about God, that Christ, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true the dead have not been raised or are not raised. Paul will not let us forget about this. He'll keep rubbing our noses or the Corinthian noses in that, right? He won't let you forget that argument. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, here we go, he'll do it again. Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your, right back again, your faith is futile. It's worthless. It's totally hopeless. And what? You're still in your sins. Paul ties this argument to the atonement. He's saying that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, your face in vain, okay, but that faith that you say that you had is worthless. Not only that, but the work that Jesus had done to appease the Father on your behalf of sin, that goes away. You still are under the wrath. Suppose there still is a God. You're still under the wrath of this God. Paul has no qualms about laying this out. He will be on this, right? Verse 17, that you're still in your sins. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we've hope in this life only, we are of all people to be, what, angry? No, pitied. I tell people that, students I, I talk with sometimes, and I steal this from Paul, that, okay, if, if, if I'm misrepresenting you, if I'm misrepresenting, or, you know, if this whole thing's, you know, wrong, then don't be mad at me. Pity me. Because I'm the most of all to be pitied, according to this passage. The fact that all of us in this room have people that we have buried, we've seen, we've gone to their funeral. Paul is arguing, then it's over. There's nothing. This is his logical conclusion to this argument. By the way, Paul does not believe in the resurrection because he thinks without the resurrection, life's hopeless, although it is. That's not where he lands in that argument. He picks up this argument differently. Look at verse 20, and now he'll change the argument. He'll turn it. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul borrows from this Old Testament language of first fruits, the, the best, the first. And what he's doing, I purposely picked up in the middle of this chapter, what he's doing is folding that argument back to the beginning of the chapter. So really quick, let's, let's take a look at this. I should say quick. Let's slow down and read this part because this is what Paul is arguing, why he holds to the resurrection. Verse 15. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1, excuse me, verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, that of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance. There was, a, there was an article that came out at the beginning of the year, the new year, it was published in the New York Times, and um, Nicholas Kristof, the, the, uh, the journalist, was interviewing Tim Keller, and the title of the article is, um, Pastor, Am I a Christian? And the point at the beginning of the article is this, 
Nicholas Kristof, who is a skeptic, he thinks he likes some ideas of Christianity, but he's high, highly dubious of other parts, skeptical of other parts. And the resurrection is one of them. Matter of fact, it's like the one, right? And he said to, to Tim Keller, I don't know about the resurrection. I like Jesus, like his teaching, not so much about the resurrection. Can I be a Christian? Am I a Christian? And Tim Keller, in his um, kind, eminent way, <laughs> if you've read Tim Keller, um, will get to the point of this and say, well, actually, no, you're not. Paul makes this of first importance. The scriptures hang on this. It all hangs on this. How do we know that? Because look at the next verse. If you hold fast to the word I preached, unless you believe in vain. Verse 3, or I delivered you in first importance that Christ died for our sins. And then this, if you underline things in your Bible, in accordance with the scriptures. And watch what he'll do is, verse 4, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He's tying this to the scriptures, right? That he, here we go. Paul is not resting this on just this one thing, although he fully believes this now. This is the same guy who murdered people. Let's not forget this, right? By the way, I was was in graduate school. I had a professor, big, hulking guy. He played football at at Vanderbilt, 6'5", huge guy, brilliant. He was one of my lead professors, and he and I were sitting at his patio on Lafayette Street, right across the street where I used to live. We were discussing a, something I'd written, and I don't know how we got on this topic, but he, he was not a Christian. He dabbled in some Christianity, dabbled in Zen Buddhism. He liked to kind of, he was kind of a religious mutt. He kind of mingled a lot of stuff. And we had this conversation, and I never, he's, he's passed away now, and I don't think he ever converted to Christianity, but he, he made this astounding statement. Smart guy, rational guy. And he said this, something happened to Paul, didn't it? And I said, yes, sir, it did. (laughs) He goes, I don't know what that was. And I said, well, it was the risen Christ, wasn't it? He goes, I don't know. But something happened. He saw something. You don't about face something like that unless something happened. Paul talks about that here. Watch this. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, verse 6, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 500. As I, we read over that, 500, okay? And most of whom are still alive. That's really important. These documents, the Miratorium Fragment, talked about that. These documents were being passed around during the same time when people were alive, who were alive would have seen Jesus. That's really important, okay? Though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Verse 7, he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Verse 8. Paul gets really a kind of existential. He gets personal here, right? He says, and last of all, to the one untimely born. I wasn't alive when Jesus was alive. To one untimely born. He appeared to me also. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That was not I, for the grace of God was with me, whether it be for I or for they. So we preach, and so you believed. Paul hinges this whole thing on the resurrection. It has to be. So, last part. So, I've broken this up on this handout, the last two parts, just to kind of segue to this. Once again, Paul makes this an all-or-nothing claim. So, why do we hold... I know I'm not hitting every question that you have, but just big picture. Why do we hold the fact of the resurrection? What reason can you give? So what I've done is, just for the few minutes we have, is to take a look at two, two happenings, two things that we're told about in the Scriptures. One is the empty tomb, and the other is um, the resurrection itself. By the way, if you think about it, one theologian said this, and I think he's absolutely right, that the resurrection is God's apologia. We'll see that again. Let you think about that. You might even write that down to think about that one. So apologia is right. His defense, right? That the resurrection is God's apologia. So one theologian said this. Once again, it's an all or nothing claim on that. 
So, part two, the empty tomb. So I've set it up this way, just to kind of go through this. What's some alternatives to the fact that this tomb was empty? I know some of you have heard this, but I'm just going to set this up maybe a little bit differently to give you, here's the alternative, what could have happened, what's been postulated, and then maybe what's wrong with that argument. Okay? So here's some things that have been given to explain the empty tomb, and then maybe some ideas of what might be wrong with that argument. So number one, uh, this is a very popular one, that Jesus fainted on the cross and that he didn't really die. This is called the swoon theory. Some of you are pretty familiar with, I'm sure, the swoon theory. So let me run through this uh, a bit on a couple of grounds, why this is perhaps a false um, or the error in thinking. So without getting too graphic here, let's look at what happened before Jesus was crucified. Okay? Uh, just a reminder, the Romans were very good at a lot of things, and probably one of the best things they were, they were the best at was, was killing people. They had capital punishment down. to the. They even knew the number of, of, of lashes that you could hit somebody. They could take you up to the point of death. They knew the number. And what they did to Jesus is they took him. Um, he is deprived of sleep. He's dehydrated. And they take him and they strip him down and they beat him mercilessly. They have no mercy with him. They have a whip, and you know these, this example, right? They have small pieces of bone and other, other uh, shrapnel tied to the end of these, these leather straps. And they run it over his body. They, they pulverize his back. And they take him to the point where he's almost dead. They take a and mockery, they take thorns, they, they weave them, they put them on his head, they press them down, they make him carry a beam, and they did crucifixion because it was a display, it was the ultimate way to say, hey, if, you, if you break the law, this could happen to you, and you don't want that happening to you. And they make him carry this beam. At one point he falls, he gets help carrying the beam, that's just before the cross. He gets on the cross. They nail him, probably in his wrists, definitely in his feet. And one of the things about the cross is, is that if you don't die of dehydration, shock, blood loss, you asphyxiate. And that means that you can't breathe. And so one of the things is because it presses on your diaphragm, and you have to pull yourself up back and forth till eventually you can't do it anymore. You become so weak. And Jesus has to do this to get a breath. This is on the cross. The Romans are also good, once again, at knowing who's dead. Not just killing you, they know who's dead. That's why if you read in the, the gospel accounts, they'll, after a while, they'll break your legs. Well, why do they break your legs? Because you can't push up anymore. You have to pull up. At least you can use your feet. Well, not with your leg broke. And you notice that the two people on the side of Jesus, they break their legs. Not Jesus. Why? Because he's dead. And just to make sure, they spear him. And they run that spear up, up through his, uh, his lungs and probably hitting his heart, the, the, the sac that runs around your heart, and blood and water come out, which means that he's collected a lot of fluid inside his body. Ladies and gentlemen, the Romans knew when someone was dead. Jesus was tortured. He was mutilated. He was put on a cross. He died. They took him down. The Romans were good at this. And to say that he swooned, just, just think about that for a second, would mean they have to be in the tomb after all that happened. He was bound. He would have to unwrap himself, and he would have to push away a boulder, which is about one to two tons. Which, by the way, Matthew makes a really interesting little comment about he how heavy this, this rock was. No one in their right mind at that time would have doubted the fact that Jesus was dead. He did not swoon. Number two, um, that the disciples had a mass hallucination, okay? Now, we could take this on a little bit further. I won't spend a lot of time on this. What is a hallucination? An hallucination is seeing something that's not there. And we've all done that, right? Right? But ladies and gentlemen, 
I read that passage from Paul because one of the things he points out is that 500 people saw him at one time. Hallucinations are not like the flu. You don't, you don't catch them. Right? This is not contagious. It's individual. And by the way, you don't die ultimately for a hallucination. Peter keeps reminding of this. Of this. He says, brothers, we're not telling you some kind of myth that was made up in a corner somewhere. We saw him. We touched him. We know him. He's very clear about that. This is not a mass. We can keep going with that, but hopefully that will be proved to you. That's not a mass hallucination. Could individuals have hallucinations? Well, of course they can. But not groups of people, not corporate groups of people. And they wouldn't die for a conviction otherwise. Number three, someone moved or stole the body. Okay? That's a, that's a pretty prominent one. I've heard that one a lot too. Let's just kind of run through this one really quick. So what would have to happen, which is always the case, if you're going to reconstruct something historically, what would have to happen for that to take place? Well, first of all, you would have to overcome the Roman guards. And let me just say that's not going to be an easy task. Not, were they, not only were they great at killing people, they were great at being a soldier as well. They were trained in this. Um, and you'd have to overcome them to do that. Number two, you'd need to break the seal that was around the stone. What's the big deal about that? Well, in the Romans, if they put a seal on something and you break it, do you know what would happen to you if they caught you? You would be crucified. There's a death penalty with that. It's not just breaking a little law. It's breaking a law for them. They'll kill you. Um, and they will have no qualms about doing that. Number three, that the mover or movers would have to, once again, after doing all this, dislodge this massive stone to do that. And that becomes a problem in itself. So that may not be convincing to you. Let me, let me come at it a different way. Who would want to do this? Who would want to steal? Let me give you some scenarios. Would the Romans want to steal Jesus' body? Well, no. They want to, this to be over with as quickly as possible. Once again, how do we know that? Because we have historical documents that tell us this. They want this to be done and gone and wash their hands of it. They would not bring, they would not steal Jesus' body and then perpetrate this myth. That would be the furthest thing from them. Well, what about the disciples? They would have reason, right? Well, if you read these historical documents, you know that the disciples, one, weren't expecting the resurrection to happen. They were doubtful. By the way, the theological concept for a resurrection for them would be this. It would be something that would happen at the end of time, not something that would happen here. And they're highly skeptical of this whole thing. They have women, no offense if you're a lady in here, the New Testament writers have women to be the first people to discover this. In the ancient world, if you ever read ancient historical literature, that's the worst thing in the world, that you would have a woman come and give that kind of information. Why? Because on the social pecking order, ladies, uh, you would not come in very high. That would, you would not be trustworthy in that. I trust you, but they wouldn't. <laughs> it would not be irreputable. You wouldn't set this up that way. So the disciples were terrified and they were in hiding. Well... What about the Jewish leaders? Well, we've got three kind of categories here. Would they want Jesus' body stolen? No. Matter of fact, they were the ones that, um, that, were see, that were glad to see Jesus to be dead to begin with. Why in the world would they want to perpetrate the fact that he had risen from the dead? That doesn't make any sense either. So that, that has some problems with that kind of thinking. Number four. Some of you may have heard this, some of you may not, that Jesus organized a resurrection conspiracy that there was a Passover plot. Sometimes it's called this. Have you ever heard of this? That Jesus orchestrated this whole thing. The whole thing. His miracles, his life, his death. So you think about this for a second. If you had to orchestrate that whole thing, like that passage that Brad preached last week and the things he's going to reference today, you would have to pick out someone in a village in Galilee who pretended to be a leper or a withered hand for their entire lives in order for Jesus to come along at the right time and the right moment to heal him. Is that possible? Oh, yeah, I guess it's possible. Is that highly improbable? It's, it's extremely improbable. And then you've got to fake your death. Once again, 
revert to point one. You've got to swoon on the cross. You've got to hope that you don't die and that you can get to the tomb enough time to unwrap yourself and dislodge a, a boulder to fulfill Scripture. That's impo- we know that's crazy. By the way, the people in the, New, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they were equally as shocked with miracles as we are today. We dumbed them down sometimes. By the way, they knew that you had to have two people to have a baby. That was not a new concept for them. They knew, for example, that um, people don't generally rise from the dead. That's, that's not something that, that would have caught them off guard as well. They understood that. They're not stupid. They knew that as well. This would be highly improbable as well. Number five. Scott touched on this a little bit last week as well. The gospel writers can't be trusted. They created a myth about the tomb, about it being empty. Okay, the gospel writers created the myth that Jesus was resurrected. So a couple of things about this. And here's the big one. So I keep harping on this, and I don't know how, how much I've made this important. I think this is really important. These documents that talk about this resurrection is written within the time of the, t- the lifetime of people who have witnessed this to take place. They would have known if this were true or not. So let me give you a, a silly example, okay? It's crazy, but let me give you an example. Let's say that today in the service, and this will be in your head the rest of the day, let's say in the service today that I get mad at Brad from one of the points that he's making. He's up preaching, and I was like, I can't stand this anymore. And I jump up, and I go up on stage, and I just start pounding him. Now, I wouldn't do that because he's bigger than I am, and he'd kill me, right? (laughs) But let's say I did that. I just start pounding him, right? And we have to stop the service, and you have to escort me out, and I'm screaming, like, uh," I've lost my mind, right? And five, a year later, five years later, okay, you're still alive, hopefully. (laughs) Five years later, I'm still mad at Brad for preaching that point. And so what do I do? Well, I write this massive, I, I sue him. And I write this long column documenting everything that happened. And I publish it in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, Northwest Arkansas Times. For good measure, I put it in the Baptist News Report. So everybody will know about it. And I document everything that, I, that took place for this lawsuit. It's five years later. The problem is I have Brad in that little, little script coming down from the pulpit and attacking me. And you sit there and read that and go, no, no, wait a second. That guy's crazy, right? He ran up on stage. I saw him do all that. So what's that got to do with the resurrection? These documents, this is why the importance of them being written within the same time frame in the second century. If this had happened a different way, I guarantee you, good grief, we've got 2,000 years of higher criticism against the scriptures already. I guarantee you there would be things written about this. This is why it's important. So we have the very fact that these documents tell us something. Uh, Greg Gilbert, in the book we've passed out recently, says this about this idea. He says, pulling off a gigantic hoax like this kind would be very difficult, if not impossible. Why? Gilbert goes on to say, because the events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection occurred within just a few years of these written events. What this means is that some of the people who had been alive when these events occurred are still alive. And they would have known that the written accounts to be accurate are not accurate. This is why I made that first initial point of reliable historical documents about a real person. So what do we know? Well, we know that Jesus died on a Roman cross, that his body was placed in a sealed tomb, and that eventually that tomb was empty. So we're building this on the resurrection Right? By the way, the, the faith of the disciples was not built upon an empty tomb. It was actually based on a resurrected Christ. And while the empty tomb is really important, and it's one of my first points here, it's not where we land ultimately. 
So four facts that establish, hopefully argue for the resurrection. Number one, talked about it, tomb was found empty. Jews, Romans, both declared this to be the case. We have multiple eyewitnesses to this. People saw him. Paul changed his whole life, spun it around. Once again, my professor, that's a head-scratcher. Why in the world would he do something like that? The converts, a lot of them early on were Jews in Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? Because they're Jews in Jerusalem, right? They were rejecting the fact that Jesus was this Messiah. Even Thomas, as you well know, would not believe until he saw. He has to physically see that. And you know that passage really well, right? Uh, The other part is that the the disciples, so number two is there were multiple eyewitnesses, right? Number three, that virtually all the early converts were Jews in Jerusalem. And number four is the disciples died in belief of this resurrection. So let me run through this list really quick. Peter, Andrew, Simon, crucified. Matthew was killed with a sword. Mark was dragged to death by horses, supposedly. Uh, Luke died by hanging. James, the just, was thrown from the temple. Thaddeus, also known as Jude, was killed by arrows. Bartholomew, who's also known as Nathaniel, whipped to death. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. All of them face agonizing deaths. Why? You have to really believe something to be true. And not just on hearsay. So why would they do something like that? So any, hopefully any good um, argument has a counter-argument. So I put one in here, a counterpoint, and I put that in your handout too. And I said, well, some might argue that while Jesus' resurrection really didn't happen, maybe the disciples thought it was true only because they really wanted it to be true. And therefore they deceived themselves. I mean, we see people strapping bombs to their bodies all the time now. Every time you turn on the news, somebody's put a bomb on their body and blown something up because of their religious zeal. Well, why can't that be the case here, is the question. And it's true. We do see in the world today extremists of all sort willing to take their lives for their own religious zeal. And yet, in the case of Jesus' disciples, there's a stark contrast here. So, for example, as I mentioned before, they were not wishing for a resurrection. They were doubting that. One, one theologian says this, that the early, I think this is a really interesting point, the early Christians, so I'm quoting from a particular theologian, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the resurrection of the risen Jesus in order to explain the faith that they already had. Rather, they developed that faith because of not only the occurrence, but the convergence of those two things. So I'll read that again. The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the sightings of the risen Jesus in order to explain the faith they already had. If you read these historical documents, you know that's not the case. Rather, they developed the faith that they had because of the resurrected Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, this has massive implications. And the implication is this. If Jesus is who he says he is, and he is, this is God's apologia, his resurrection, then not only can we trust him, we can absolutely trust the scriptures. It's an all or nothing argument. I leave you with this. I teach literature. One of my favorite writers is Flannery O'Connor, Southern writer. And she writes this great piece called A Good Man's Hard to Find. And a good man is hard to find. In the, in the course of the short story, she has a character called the misfit. He's a murderer. He's murdered. He's going to murder the main uh, protagonist in the story, the grandmother. And the grandmother and the misfit, the murderer, have this theological conversation. O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor, has them have this theological conversation. And at one point, through the mouth of the murderer, the misfit, he says this. He says, Jesus has thrown everything 
off balance. He shouldn't have done it. If he did what he said he did, rise from the dead, then he's thrown everything off balance. What does she mean, he's thrown everything off balance? She, she has the misfit to go in to say this, because if he did what he said he did, if he rose from the dead, then there's nothing to do but to drop everything and follow him, because he's Lord. If he didn't do it, then you can do any kind of meanness that you want, because it doesn't matter. That's an all or nothing proposition that O'Connor's making. It's the same proposition that Paul's making as well. This is why we believe in shorthand. This is why we believe. All right. Next week, we take on the last part of world religions. And Scott and I may do a little tag team action. So I may do part of it and Scott do the next. And um, hope you come back.